Hear the word of our God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The grass withers, the flower fades. This word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We ask that our hearts would here be humbled, but also that they would be lifted up to your very throne room as we gaze upon our Savior. May we see him more clearly, know more of him from this your word, and honor him more faithfully each day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we have just such an amazing account of our Savior's heart on the night in which he was betrayed. John shows us a number of things that the the other apostles don't emphasize, uh, maybe accounts they don't even give 
Uh, All the other accounts focus for this particular night on the giving of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Those three Gospels were all written years earlier when the church was in its infancy, and, and so they are seeking to establish that sacrament which the Lord was giving to his church to remember and practice until he comes again. John, much later, is writing his gospel. The sacrament has been well established among God's people. And now he seems to tackle how they understand the heart of Christ, even in the sacrament itself, in one sense. He he gives this account of what happened before Christ ever administered his sacrament, his supper to his disciples. The heart of the Savior whom we are to remember here in this text. John makes clear several things about Christ. He makes clear that Christ knew what hour it was. In John 12, Christ makes clear he knows that it's the hour when his glory is imminent. But first he has to experience the suffering of the cross for that glory to come. And so here John reminds us, Christ knows it's the hour, the hour before he ascends to the Father, the hour when he will suffer. Christ knows, John also makes clear, Christ knows that Judas is about to betray Christ. Christ isn't taken unawares by this. He, he's not ignorant and foolishly thinking Judas is one of his disciples. He knows Judas's heart. He has known. And he knows what Judas is about to do. He also knows that all the rest of them are about to abandon him. And that Peter, in less than a day, is going to deny him with curses vehemently three times. And John emphasizes to us that in that context of his knowledge, having loved his own who were in the world, he went right on loving them through all of that right to the end. Right through the suffering of the cross, right through the Father's wrath, hell itself, poured out on him on the cross until he could say for each of his children, it is finished. His love did not stop, says John, from this point all the way till then. And not only that, John John shows us Christ in his love for the unlovely in all his power. Not only the power we know he has because he knew this and he knew that. He knew the hour and he knew what was in Judas' heart. But also the power that he knows he possesses himself. That the Father was giving him all things. All was given to him. And all was his to control How astonishing this thought. The Father had given all things into his hand that he should come, that 
uh, and that he had come from God and was going to God. And yet with that self-awareness, what does he do? Strips off the outer garment, puts on the towel, and pours the water. What does Christ do with power? John says, he loves in humility. Apparently, none of the disciples felt that it was uh, something they could do themselves. But here's our Savior, stooping even to this menial and detested task for their cleansing. Consider with me tonight our servant, our washing, and our servanthood. For note takers, I tried to come up with an S for that second one. The only thing I could think of was sanitization, and that just didn't feel right. So you'll have to, wa- you'll have to put washing there, but our servant, if you want all S's, sanitization, but it's a stretch. First, first, just keep gazing with me at our servant here. Here are the apostles, and they're all waiting for someone else. There's no servant there to wash feet, and feet needed to be washed. Most of you, I presume, tonight can go home, take off your socks, and climb in bed. And it won't be a big deal. But think about the middle of August, and you've been wearing sandals or flip-flops all day, and you've gone to a cookout in someone's yard and walked through the dirt, and you come home, and if you're a guy who's married, probably your wife has trained you not to get right in bed with those dirty feet, or your children, maybe your parents tell you you need to take a bath first, and really what they're saying is you need to clean the mud off your feet first, and the stink off your feet first, and before going to bed. Think about the ancient Near East. Here is, here is someone, let's say you just bathed in your home and put on perfume because they did that kind of thing and, and put on your best outfit and you're going to celebrate the Passover one block away at someone's house. But you have to walk on that dirt road. So you get there and there's dirt on your feet. And we would say, yeah, no big deal. You you sit at the table, your feet are down there, the food's up here, no one's going to notice, but that's not how their tables worked, is it? They had low-to-the-ground tables, you would recline with your feet to the side, and then someone else would be next to those feet, a couple feet away from your feet, and a couple feet away from their food are your feet. And so you, you needed a, a servant or someone to come and Wash the feet so that everyone could enjoy the meal. No servant. Well, presumably a lot of houses, then the, the youngest child old enough to do the, the job would have to do this. I suspect the apostles were all thinking things like, you know, maybe, maybe Peter, who was one of the older apostles, is thinking, young teenage John, why isn't he getting up? He should know that he's the lowest here and he needs to do this. Or maybe some of the others were thinking things like, Matthew was a tax collector. Obviously, he's the lowest here. 
He, why isn't Matthew getting up? Or that other guy, and I, I'm blanking on his name, who was a former terrorist, a zealot. Obviously, he's the least of us. He should be doing it. Apparently, they're all sitting around waiting for the least to do their task. And obviously, I am not the least. They've been having this out for weeks. They were on the road traveling to Jerusalem. Jesus says, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die and then rise again. And they all say, well, John and James actually come up and say, Master, when we're in your kingdom, let us be the the second and third most important people in the realm. And all the rest of the apostles get mad. Why? Because that's such a horrible thing to ask. No. They all get mad because John and James beat them to it. Obviously, I should be the second and maybe John or James the third. This has been their heart, their attitude, even as Christ set his heart to the cross. So how ashamed ought they to feel where now Christ gets up and no doubt a great deal of confusion. Wait, where, where's he going? What, what's he doing? No. He, he, he's getting the water. And he's coming over here with it. You, you can see their confusion, but hopefully also their shame. Although John, in the text here of his gospel, seems to imply that although they were all surprised then, in hindsight, they shouldn't have been, nor should we. Because John, in the end of John 12, quotes from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And John knows, and you ought to know, and we've just read it together, where that goes. A despised and rejected servant of the Lord. We won't even look at his face. He's so unbeautiful, marred, or destroyed by hatred or whatever Isaiah's getting at there about his, his appearance. We won't even look at him. John quotes that. Remember that John didn't put in chapter divisions. We did that. So John's gospel, he quotes Isaiah 53. One paragraph later, having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. He got up and took on the part of the servant. What, what else should we have expected from the servant of the Lord? That's what John is saying with that quote from Isaiah 53. I hope that as you read this passage, other thoughts echo in your mind as well. Perhaps Philippians 2, that colossal praise him of the early church which Paul puts into the letter of Philippians. It, it, it's, clearly, it's clearly making the same points Christ is making here with this acted out parable he does. Here the two put side by side, Jesus knowing that he had come from God, being in the form of God knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He rose, laid aside his outer garments, made himself of no reputation, 
and taking a towel and the form of a servant, poured water into a basin. He humbled himself and began to wash the disciples' feet, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here's our Savior. Both texts don't stop there. They both have a transition point. Ours is a bit more subtle. So when he had washed their feet, it could be translated, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And Philippians, of course, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. As we compare those two, I think it's important for us to note about our servant here that he did not give up his lordship and his power. He did not give up his deity. And doesn't that make this all the more astonishing? Here, in his full and undiminished deity, Christ washes filthy feet. This is the gracious and humble service of God the Son to sinners. This is your servant. Astonishing. I find often in our day and age, we jump right from there to let's apply the servanthood question. And that's an important one in the text. But I think we miss something if we jump over taking time looking at the washing itself. Because Christ isn't just saying, hey, look, I'm an example of a generally nice servant like man. He's showing what his servanthood accomplishes, what it does for you and I. And so we look here at what he has to say about washing. Of course, it all comes in this context of the conversation at Peter's expense. Peter, who who just has the nerve to say what the rest of them are thinking, Lord, not you, any of the rest of them could wash my feet. But not you, Lord, never you. You will not wash my feet. Such a disdainful, filthy servant task. Let one of them do it. But not you, Lord. And Christ, Christ responds by presenting two clean, cleansings, two washings. Hope you notice that there are two in our text. There's the washing without which you have no part in Christ. It is a complete washing. And then there's the foot washing that he requires of Peter anyway. Two separate washings. If you look cautiously and carefully at what Christ is saying here. So, First, the the complete washing. Christ responds to Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. 
One commentator summarizes Christ's point. Peter, unless by means of my work, my entire work, all the way to the cross, unless by means of this humiliating work, of which this foot washing is only an image, unless by means of my work I cleanse you from your sins, you do not share with me in the fruits of my redemptive merits. You can't, in other words, have the righteousness of Christ without him cleansing you. You can't have the benefits of Christ, his intercession in heaven before the throne. You you can't have the, the value of Christ's inheritance for all eternity. None. You have no part in me, says Christ, unless I wash you. John will later speak of this again in his first epistle. He writes, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Indeed, Paul will say in Titus, this is key to Christ's very reason for coming. Titus 2 14, we hear Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, that he might purify for himself his own special people. Peter cannot wish his salvation into existence. Lord, not, don't demean yourself. Don't do this to yourself. I'll figure out a way. I'll want it enough. Or zeal it away. I'll cut off any number of ears for you. Or work it out on his own. Working and earning the Father's reconciliation and pardon for sin. No, Christ is saying very clearly to his apostles in that room and to us tonight that only his blood can bring cleansing to the sinner and cleanse them of all their sins so that they might be acceptable to the Father. Remember what the prophet said? He said to God, Habakkuk, you are of too pure eyes to behold evil. And there's that sense of filth when he says evil. But unless Christ washes us, we can have no place with the Father and no place with the Son. He washes us with his blood. That one great washing which sticks. It sticks. You cannot lose your justification before the Father. It's dependent on that which washes whiter than snow. The blood of Christ. Well, Peter has his typical zealous pendulum swing 
Well, then wash all of me. I, I don't want a little participation in you, Jesus. I want all of it. What a great attitude. Would we all have that kind of attitude with a little more understanding? Christ's response. And what a tender way he responds, is it not? Not with exasperation. Not with frustration. Not losing his temper with the one who's about to deny him. But with tenderness and perhaps a little humorous affection. He says, he who's bathed, he who's bathed only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And Peter, you, you are clean. You've already been saved. I don't need to save you again. What a wonderful thing for Peter to remember in 12 hours. In 24 hours. Throughout the rest of his life, when he reflects on his denial and whatever other sins he had through those years. What a wonderful thing for us to hear as well. Christ is saying to Peter, Peter, your foolishness, your filth cannot strip away the salvation I have given you. Your filth cannot make me and my righteousness tainted. Remember the lepers throughout the previous three years of Christ's life? The lepers had to yell unclean and stay at a distance from everyone, couldn't be touched by anyone. What does Christ do? If a priest had touched one of those lepers, they would have been ceremonially unclean. What does Christ do? He touches them and they're suddenly pure and clean. And he's still clean. He's saying the same thing to Peter that he was declaring every time he touched one of those men. He's saying to Peter and you and I here, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. If the Son has washed you in His blood, you don't need to be washed again, saved again. So why does he make Peter get his feet washed now? He's making a point now about a a second washing, isn't he? Peter, you've already been washed, so all you need is this other little thing. He's about to send his spirit forth into the hearts of his people. And one of the primary things the Holy Spirit does in the life of one who has been washed in the blood of the Lamb, having united us to Christ, the Holy Spirit then conforms us to Christ. Theological term is sanctification, making us more holy. The one who is washed needs never be washed again, but daily the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us continuing 
to work that putting off of sin and putting on of Christ. And that's what Christ is displaying to His disciples here. I've washed you already. And I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to abandon the work I've done. I have washed you, but through my Spirit, I will daily remove the filth that you pick up in your contact with the world. It's not a filth they pick up because the world's so bad and they're innocently walking through it. We, we fall for the love of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Christ is saying, I will cleanse you and make you more like myself until that great day when you are like me for you will see me face to face. This is our servant doing the complete work of cleansing us and presenting us, the church, his bride to his father one day, pure and spotless and without any stain. Well, then Christ moves on, having taken up his garment again, he sits down, resumes his place, and teaches on servanthood. If we've skipped over the washing part, we might make this an oversimplified servanthood. Just go out and be humble and nice. But having considered the gospel itself, that will affect how we view servanthood. I think... Two very strong ways here that often we in the church fail to go about our servanthood. As I talk about servanthood, I mean both sides of our servanthood. We're servants of Christ through evangelism, the witnessing of the gospel to the lost, and through all those acts of mercy that adorn the gospel as we humbly serve Christ, But to have these things presented to the world rightly and for to really be the reflection of Christ, two things are needed much more than they are found in God's people. The first is our servanthood needs to be motivated by His humility. The, the only way we will have humility in servanthood is by remembering His humility. Far too much, far too much mercy ministry, far too much evangelism is done in an arrogant and prideful fashion. Uh, Often, everyone can see that except the person who's arrogant and proud and thinking they're doing servanthood. And the world sees how proud this person is coming across. And the church sometimes sees it, but the individual does not. We, we should long to not be found in a facade of servanthood. Letting our egos puff out our chests as we, as we share the gospel. Oh, I was so wise that I accepted this. Or I was so lovely that Christ saved me. Or, or in terms of how we disdain other believers that we don't think 
are doing servanthood enough or in the right way. But as we gaze on Christ, our servant, who is the master, the servant is not greater than the master. And what a master, the master of the universe, the creator of the world, the one who laid down his own life, but picks it up again. And will reign forever and ever. That's the master. And yet he stoops down and washes stinky, filthy feet. It's humorous. It's so ridiculous, isn't it? It's astonishing to think of God washing someone's feet. I don't know if any of you have have done kind of a literal version of, of foot washing. Uh, in in a group of believers before. I've done it once. I was washing a a, a friend's feet in college. Uh, A big marine with very smelly feet. It was not the most enjoyable experience of my life. Although we became friends and he hadn't liked me before that. So astonishing. But it's extremely humiliating to get down so close you smell the person's feet and have to rub their feet for them. We're Americans. Wash your own feet. It's not that hard. God did that for sinners. Only then do we approach servanthood, whether it's evangelism, what we say about the gospel or or whether it's mercy ministry, passing out uh, toiletries to people in need, or, 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 or dishing soup at a soup kitchen, or, or taking someone under your wing and taking them to a restaurant. All of these things can be done in all the wrong ways. It's when we remember our master that we do them in the right way. Motivated humility. But then, then we also need faithful delivery. And Christ puts that before us as well. Faithful delivery. Christ says the messenger is not greater than the one who sends him. Well, Jesus, what does that have to do with foot washing? What does that have to do with servanthood? Well, he's telling us that we, in how we approach both mercy ministry and evangelism, cannot alter the message. The God of the universe has given the message, you need washing, or you have no part in Him. And we don't have the right to alter that, to make the mercy seem nicer, or the message seem more palatable. The way that we approach so many things in the evangelical church today is to say, well, that would get in the way of the person coming to Christ, whatever that means. And so we're going to tone down the talk about washing because washing assumes filth and filth assumes sin and that makes people feel bad. So we're going to tone that down a few notches. Or or we're going to focus on mercy and, and not 
not make it unpalatable by bringing the gospel alongside that mercy and showing it as the most important thing. It's important to do the mercy things. I hope, hope we agree on that. But as you're cutting that check for someone's electric bill they couldn't pay or, or uh, handing that person food, is that the first thing they need dealt with? It may be the immediate thing they need dealing with. And you work on that. But in the church today, we have this tendency to shave away those things and just focus on looking nice and being nice. And imagine if Christ had had this kind of modern American evangelical attitude up in the upper room. Well, first, first he would have come to Peter and Peter would have said, Lord, you'll never wash me. And he would have said, well, okay, if, as long as you feel clean enough. Sure. I'll move, I'll move on to Matthew here. If Matthew had said, Lord, not just my feet, all of me. Oh, sure. If you feel like you need that. But that's not the message he gives us. He gives a very clear message. You need washing, a specific washing, or you have no part in me. And if you've had that washing, I'll continue my work within you. And part of that, he says, just one chapter later in the very same upper room, is that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's part of how he does this work of cleansing our feet. By the Spirit drawing us to walk in line with the law of God, not as salvation, but to please him and glorify and imitate him. And so as we look at servanthood in this passage, we we have to have humility. We have to have faithful delivery as well. And in our culture, we don't think those two things go together at all. If you're humble, you won't talk about sin. But our Savior is putting these things before us and telling us, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The world may hate you. The world, hates, the world hates saviors that, that get stinky washing feet and then tell people they have to repent of sin. Hated Christ. And it will hate us as well. Paul says, let this mind be in you. Let's pray.